Welcome to The O Podcast, an audio companion to Tufts' oldest publication, The Observer Magazine. This podcast is released alongside each print issue of The Observer. Here, we aim to delve deeper into the topics explored in the articles, consider new perspectives, and uplift voices from the print issue and beyond. This issue dealt with the topic of uncertainty. The release of this episode marks the anniversary of Tufts' campus-wide evacuation last spring. After a year of immeasurable change, how have students and faculty responded, adapted, and grown? How does uncertainty regarding the pandemic continue to affect us? In this episode, we'll take a deep dive into three pieces. We'll speak to Audrey Ledbetter about the writing process behind her personal essay, Tapestries of My Grief, and how unexpected joy helps you through unexpected sorrow. Building off Eleanor Fusitola's reporting, we'll hear more student and faculty voices regarding the vaccine rollout at Tufts. Sylvia Wang wrote about the SMFA's boxed art gallery for our first issue. In this episode, we'll speak to one of the artists who participated, Saira Mukherjee, about art in the time of COVID. The O Podcast presents Uncertainty. segment of the podcast, we wanted to know how personal narratives can help us process what's happening in our constantly changing world. I'm Suhasini. And I'm Alexis. And today we'll be speaking with Audrey, who wrote a beautiful piece on loss and hope, titled Tapestries of My Grief, which you can find in the print edition of The Observer. So Audrey, you wrote a beautiful personal narrative about your experiences with grief, and you related that to your experience of COVID. Can you tell us a bit about that? How did you get started? What were your inspirations to write this piece? Yeah, for sure. So it was kind of just a way for me to start writing more creatively rather than academically and sort of really think about things in my life that I was interested in, but never really like sat down and thought through and worked out how I felt, how I thought about it. Um, So I originally started started writing this piece for my newsletter about the unexpected in COVID and kind of like how I found joy last semester in a lot of unexpectedly good things that happened to me. Um, And then I remember being like, oh, there's something about Coach K that relates to this in this piece. And then I was like, I don't really want to just write a paragraph about her and like, put it in there like that I and I realized that there was so much there so then I just ended up writing an entire essay on it and like kind of got back to my original point but it ended up being far more about Coach K than what I originally thought I was gonna write about so yeah that's how I started that's how I kind of came to the topic looking back on writing this it was very like me writing it was me coming to all of these realiz- like realizations that I have that I wrote about in the piece, like a lot of the connections between Coach K and COVID and the unexpected and all of that really came through writing the piece rather than it being this linear, like, this is what I learned about grief through when Coach K passed. And this is when, and this is how it applied to COVID. It was really all this, um, big like thing that came together around like the same time as I was writing um and I kind of the main thread that connects 
Coach K's death and COVID for me was this idea of like, I used to spend, still do, but spend so much time thinking about my future, like in these very specific terms, like either this is going to happen or this is going to happen, or like this horrible thing will happen or this horrible thing will happen, like kind of in these binary like (laughs) ways that like, is like, I know exactly what's going to happen. And then Coach K passed away. And that was the first thing to me that really happened in my life that was so unexpected. And so just like a woman that I expected to be at all of my big life events for the rest of like for the foreseeable future. Like she used to fly out to go to her old players weddings all the time. And so I just kind of expected that like she would be at my wedding or like things Mm -hmm. like that. Like she would just be in my life. And I spent, I remember being afterwards being like, wow, I just these expectations that I have about my life and like the future just went so wrong and were just so not true. And like COVID was like a massive, large scale version of that. Like with COVID, it just like my entire life was just completely upended, obviously, like everyone's was. And it was this really unexpected thing that happened. And I remember, like, one of the first things I thought after COVID happened was, like, I spent so much time thinking about my spring, the fun I was going to, like, these things I was going to do, all this different stuff that just literally never happened. And, like, I wasted so much time thinking about that. I was so disillusioned by, like, having positive thoughts about the future ever because, like... You never know if someone really close to you is going to pass away in some really, like, horribly tragic and unexpected way, or, like, this massive pandemic is going to just upend everyone's lives. And so I think I entered at some point this headspace where I was just so scared of the future. And so, like, I can't, like, how do I look forward to things? How do I get excited about things when there's all this going on and all of these unexpected things that could happen? I really like before I moved back here had no idea what my life was going to look like and I was just so scared and just expected it to be horrible (laughs) but I ended up meeting a lot of really lovely new people and like having some really wonderful and beautiful moments and I thought a lot about how those moments for me felt so much sweeter because I had no idea that they were going to happen like there was it was kind of and this is where that whole thing about unexpected joy comes in is like that those small unexpected like joys that I just could never have anticipated were like really saved my life and still are saving my life and so I think the whole theme idea is really like as much as I these horrible unexpected things have happened like and being so afraid of the uncertainty is such like a visceral and normal reaction like starting to trust in the uncertain like rather than still being afraid of the uncertainty but also like trusting in it too because like as much as there are bad uncertain things that will happen there are good uncertain things like there are things that you will never be able to expect that are beautiful and wonderful that will happen and you have no idea what they are. Like I have no idea 
what is going to be like the most fun moment of my life in 2022 but I'm so excited for that moment so like being like really excited for like the good things as much as like being really afraid of the bad things I think that that balance has like really really helped me so this brings us actually really nicely to this the penultimate paragraph of your piece where you've talked about the little unexpected beams of light in your life that have become so important since COVID began. It's a really lovely passage. Would you read it out for us? These unexpected sorrows drown me, but unexpected joy dives headfirst into the water and swims me out, allowing me a breath of fresh air before I get pulled back under again. Coach K's death and COVID both took me underwater so murky I couldn't see the surface, but joy is the beam of light shining through, showing me the way out. There are the little things. When I get so caught up in my work that I don't realize I'm going to wake up to snowfall. A last-minute dinner invitation with lovely people I don't see often. There are the big things. Falling in love with friends I had no idea I was going to have. An unnecessarily kind email from a professor that defined my future. The stories that I tell myself, woven into the fabric of my mind by conversation with friends, keep the grief at an arm's length and give me the space to experience this joy. Such a beautiful passage. Like, thank you. It it's so real and emotional, and I don't think I can ever write something like real as real and raw as that myself. And the fact that you just started getting into creative writing, it's it's amazing. It took me like writing to realize that I thought that you know it's the kind of thing that I would never think about that drowning metaphor in the water in my head without writing it. But now it's like one of these really special things that I think about all the time. But like, I came to that through writing. Like I talk about the year of magical thinking a lot in the piece, it, which also was like kind of the way that I started to begin to feel like, like reflecting on my grief and pro like thinking about how I worked, like felt about it the first few days. Um, because, like, I'd never really looked back on it until I read an entire book that was, like, the year after her husband died unexpectedly. But so there's this line in it that says, I think it's something like, was it only by dreaming or writing that I found out what I thought? And I really think about that all the time. Is like, I wake up from dreams and I'm like, I, I dreams mean nothing. I, but it's like, I feel like they're really good, like indicators of like, they get me thinking about things. And like, when I write and try to find good way, like, ways to say things, it kind of like, leads me into learning about what I think and how I feel about it. So it's like, been so helpful for me, <laughs> emotionally, <laughs> to write it. And it's crazy that people can read it now. <laughs> it's really like good for people yeah, around campus to see this, this like your passage written out that they can relate to in some ways, maybe not all the same ways, mm -hmm. but I feel like a lot of people do need to come to terms with what has happened. It it doesn't. I don't think we fully understand yet the complexities it'll have on the rest of our lives. Like, like because it's so hard to wrap your mind around, like, the scale of the tragedy of COVID and, like, the, I mean, the possibility that, like, someone you love, like, can just pass away in a plane crash. Like, 
is so foreign to me and it still feels not real and it's like to wrap our like we have to go on living and we have to go on functioning and to wrap our minds around things like that we like tell ourselves or I do I tell myself like stories little tidbits like here in a nutshell is what I learned from coach K and I'm going to carry that with me always like this is how I explain like my ability to deal with COVID like make the best like it's really really hard like kind of make the best of the situation like all of this like positivity and all of this stuff that like unexpected joys like great things like for me to try to help get myself through it is like so important like that's how I feel like I'm able to exist with all the craziness is like having stories that I tell myself and but sometimes like I don't know if y'all ever have these moments but like Sometimes I'll just be sitting and I'll see just a bunch of people with masks around and I'll just like be like, I forgot that this is not normal. Like, I forgot that this isn't, that this is like actually crazy and insanity. And I'm like, is this real life? And then I just like lose it. Not like, I just like get so lost in some like weird metaphysical brain space that like doesn't exist. <laughs> and, and then like, I'm like, okay, bring it back. Like get back to your pretty cute stories that you tell yourself, like to ward off the existential dread. Like, <laughs> hard to watch TV these days and be like, no, you're, you're going to get sick. And <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. It's crazy too. Like, and when you see like movies and stuff with that are like, that happens there, but not in my life. Like a crazy pandemic that kills like 500,000 Americans, like is in the, in this movie that is horribly sad that will never happen to us. Like this plane crash in Grey's Anatomy is Grey's Anatomy, you know? Like this isn't going to encroach on my life. Yeah, you can turn it off and you don't have to think about it. Exactly. And I think that it being it being in tv and movies and stuff makes me like feel like it's even farther away from my life like if there's something that's like so overly dramatized in something I'm like that's not real and it's a really weird experience when something like it happens in your life like I feel like you see I've seen like the grief of people losing like I I keep coming back to Grey's Anatomy, but I feel like this is where shit like this happens. It's like, <laughs> like people really grew like losing people in these horribly unexpected ways. And then like you, I had to like deal, it happened in my life. And it was a very strange experience to be like processing it, but also having seen people. I also don't think I will ever have finished processing it like but seeing people process it on screen so like it's so it's such a weird dynamic on an, on that note uh wandavision's latest episode this is just a quote from it that i like i'm probably paraphrasing because i don't remember it exactly but they had a really great quote from vision which this is such a nerdy thing to say <laughs> yes i'm a nerd i accept it um no yeah he I'm said, what is great if not love oh 100 persevering love persevering and it was just a such like they're having the the humanoid robot with an infinity stone say the most like <laughs> and emotional statement of the whole 
Yeah, wait, that's actually so interesting too. Like grief is love persevering because it's the kind of thing where like you would never wish that kind of pain upon yourself, mm-hmm. but for having loved someone else, you have that pain. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's grief is such a weird thing. It's a very difficult topic, but I feel Because like- I think everyone handles it differently um it's one of those things that is so like it's part of being human um is having like or a lot of part of being human for so many people is dealing with mental health and like dealing with grief and I think like for me talking about my history and my story with mental health it's like the kind of thing where it's really really helpful to hear someone else's story even if it's so different from your own. Like, my, like, even hearing someone else, like, going through the same thing, even if they deal with it very differently or things are very different in their mind, like, there's still some kind of, like, camaraderie and, like, I'm not the only one, like, I'm not crazy that you get from hearing other people's stories, even if it's the kind of thing that's, like, you always have to speak from the eye perspective. Like with mental health, you always have to be like, this is my experience. And like with this too, it was very like, this is my experience. Do you have any like final thought or like a quote you want to end on from your piece? Oh, a quote. I think the last line is really nice. Um, The unknown and unexpected carries much beauty, hopefully enough to hold my hand through the sorrow. Love that. Boom. Thank you so much, Audrey. Yeah, thank you. How has Tufts addressed the issue of vaccine rollout? Currently, Tufts has announced plans to administer the vaccine to healthcare workers, those 65 and older, or those with two or more high-risk conditions in the community. Meanwhile, students, faculty, and other community members are waiting on the edge of their seat for the vaccine to be available for all. My name is Emma Downs. Today, I'll be telling you what you need to know about the current state of the vaccine rollout at Tufts. We'll hear the perspectives of several community members, all with different relationships to the vaccine, about what the rollout means for their health and for the future of Tufts. While social distancing and mask wearing are crucial for slowing the virus spread, a powerful tool in fighting COVID-19 is the vaccine. Currently, three vaccines are authorized to be administered to the public. The Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, which have shown 95% effectiveness against the virus, and the newly approved Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which has shown 85% effectiveness against the virus. Massachusetts is currently vaccinating those eligible in Phase 1 and some in Phase 2. Phase 2 is split into four groups, and currently only the first two groups are eligible to receive the vaccine. This means that of all Massachusetts residents, those currently eligible are healthcare workers, those over 65, and those with two or more at-risk conditions. Up next are those in groups three, which includes a wide range of workers, including teachers, sanitation workers, and food industry workers, and then those in group four, 
which includes individuals with one at-risk condition. Unfortunately, the rollout process has been far from smooth. Limited supply, high demands, and frequent changes to rollout plans have caused the state to fall behind. Eligible individuals must navigate a decentralized and unorganized registration process to just get an appointment. As stated in bold letters on the MassGov website, it may take an individual several attempts over the course of weeks to get an appointment for just the first dose. As highlighted by Eleanor Fusatola in the Observer print issue, an evaluation by the Harvard Kennedy School demonstrated Massachusetts received a grade of F for deaths per capita, vaccines per capita, and vaccinations as percentage of doses available. The state ranks 44th among the 50 states for vaccinations as percentage of doses available, and 33rd in months to finish vaccinating eligibles. If Massachusetts was a tough student, it might be thinking about exceptional pass-fail because those are not passing grades. In light of this uncertainty in the state vaccination plans, many community members are turning to Tufts in hopes of receiving the vaccine. On February 9th, Tufts received enough doses to start vaccinating healthcare workers, those 65 and older, and those with two or more eligible medical conditions. Unlike the state's process, which requires individuals to sign up for vaccinations, Tufts will be contacting eligible community members directly. This is partially because they will not be receiving enough doses to vaccinate large groups of people or to hold clinics. As a result, Tufts is requesting that members do not contact them about receiving the vaccine. This has proven difficult for some undergraduate students at Tufts, such as junior Emily McMullen. Emily has an at-risk medical condition, ulcerative colitis. I am somewhat disappointed in Tufts a little when it comes to the vaccine rollout. While they have been keeping us updated, and I appreciate that, they haven't really talked about how they plan on rolling it out past if you're 65 plus. And all of the emails are like, don't email us, don't contact us. And as someone who's immunocompromised, I'm sitting here like, okay, but how will I make sure you guys know I qualify? Like, it's not like you guys have access to all my medical records. And while I, I do have um, some of the medical issues registered with Student Accessibility Life, I had never registered ulcerative colitis, mostly because I was in remission. So it didn't matter. I wasn't going to impact my school life. And so the fact that Tufts hasn't been very open with us on how they plan on vaccinating um, after they get past the 65 plus group, it has disappointed me. Emily's frustration with the Tufts process has been exacerbated by the fact that the Massachusetts rollout has been slow compared to other parts of the country. Tufts has recommended that those with questions about vaccine eligibility turn to the state, yet Emily has had no success with that process either. I know like statewide it's different. So I'm from New York State. And so like my mom at one point texted me and she's like, oh, they're doing immunocompromised people in New York can you do it in Massachusetts? And I was like, no, mom, I'm sorry. But you know, it, it is state by state and Massachusetts was a little slow to start up. Meanwhile, one professor has been keeping up with the vaccine rollout with vigilance, not because he's waiting to be vaccinated, but because he may never be able to be vaccinated. There's a, a good likelihood that I will not be able to get the vaccine, um, even when I'm, it's my turn because I had a very serious illness five years ago says Professor Adrian Cruz of the Sociology Department. Professor Cruz informed me that he had been sick with Guillain-Barre syndrome, a rare disorder in which your body's immune system attacks your own nerves. 
often those with this illness become paralyzed. For Professor Cruz, this illness caused him to lose sensory perception, and experts have told him that it's too dangerous for him to take flu vaccines. It's very terrifying. I need herd immunity. Uh, I need others to get the vaccine. Um, and, and so I'm concerned about that. And so that's also motiv motivated me to be very, very vigilant about uh, infection spread. The New York Times on its front page has a percentage. It always has a percentage of who has been fully vaccinated in the country. I think we're at 7% right now in the U.S. I'm very concerned about vaccine rollout uh, and want to see every, as many people as possible to be vaccinated. Professor Cruz's health truly relies on the actions of others, making it difficult for him to relax and feel safe outside of his home. When he does see others, he does his best to make sure that those around him are equipped to handle the pandemic. When students or friends visit him on his porch, he makes sure to give them a parting gift. I've made a point of, I don't know what you would call this, but anybody who comes to see me, I give them a bag of, that uh, has paper towels, toilet paper, uh, wipes, and some sanitizer. So I, I give things to people. I guess it's my way of maybe sharing. Uh, I don't know if they're, you know, they, I'm assuming everybody is uh, well stocked, but you don't know. It's impossible for anyone to know exactly how others have been acting or control what safety precautions they follow. So Professor Cruz does his best to help others be safe, and he can only hope others are being vigilant and prioritizing stopping the spread. Priyanka Kadam, a junior studying human factors engineering, has already received both doses of the vaccine. Priyanka, who is immunocompromised, is just as grateful for the mental relief the vaccine has given her as she is for the physical safety it provides. For me, it's just like being more comfortable like on public transport, just being less nervous about going to the grocery yeah. store or things like that. Like it's peace of mind, I think, has been the biggest change for me. For others, like Professor Cruz, the anxiety of mitigating this health crisis will not simply go away, even when the vaccine rollout is nearly complete. The threat of the virus will still influence his behaviors and color his interactions with others. And he's unsure about how his cautionary attitude will be received by others. Considering my, my own behaviors will probably be like, hey, this is terrible, but can you like show me your vaccine ID or something so I can actually talk to you? I don't know. You can't ask people that those kinds of questions, but I guess my behavior will change because the thought will be running through my mind. Is this person vaccinated? Is that person vaccinated? Nor does Professor Cruz believe that this anxiety will ever be fully relieved. In fact, he believes we, as a society and as individuals, should be prepared for more pandemics down the road. I think more viruses are coming down the pike. I think that we better get used to shifting between, you know, normal operations and then having to shut down, wear masks, things like that. He's likely correct. As humans further encroach on the natural world, scientists and experts have warned us that we will be exposed to more and more wildlife diseases, meaning another pandemic may be closer than we think. Whether or not we're in a pandemic, the safe habits built during this time can benefit us daily. Professor Cruz and his family are glad that masks have been introduced and normalized here in America. In places such as China and South Korea, many individuals wear masks regularly when they're sick with any type of cold just to keep those around them healthy. I have a spouse who, this is in some ways a victorious moment for her. You know, she's like always been asking, why don't Americans put on a mask when they're sick? Wear a mask. It's such a simple thing to do. Uh, and now she's like, oh, thank God, Americans are wearing masks. 
Um, should have done it a long time ago. For Aidan Herod, a junior majoring in film and media studies, he thinks of post-pandemic life with a sense of optimism. I'm excited to see um, how everyone sort of treats their fellow neighbor, treats their fellow um, community members, sort of the love that may be um, shared between a lot of people post-pandemic. I think we're all going to be so excited to um, see each other again and just to really be a part of a community all um, 100% and not have to um, implement distancing or masking or anything like that. Whether or not masks and social distancing will be part of daily life for months or years to come, all four of these community members are grateful for Tuff's response to COVID-19 and its commitment to safety in the community. I was skeptical and very pessimistic when the pandemic struck as to how the university would manage it. Maybe that tells you something about me, about just a basic level of distrust that I have in certain institutions or, you know, organizations. Not not tough specifically, but just, I, I don't know. And then, frankly, it seems like uh, from everything I can see, they've done a very good job. You know, the, I think you, you have to have materials and they have a testing site. And even though I have an appointment every Saturday to get a test, I think I can walk in there probably any time and, and get a yeah. test um, without any problem. Uh, and that's pretty invaluable. I guess what I do want to say is that Tufts is rich. They can afford to do it, um, which it's great to have it. But, you know, it makes me think about other uh, institutions and other places that cannot afford to have a testing site. Um, it, it points to the, the desire that Tufts has to probably get back to in-person classes as soon as possible, right? The fact that they would invest all this, and, and to keep things, keep us safe, I get that. Um, but it seems that, uh, uh, it seems that overall they've done a good job. I felt very safe on campus, and I think from what I've heard from other, like happening at other universities, I feel like the testing frequency and everything, it feels so much more comprehensive here. I feel pretty safe in this little bubble that we live in. I think that we, we still have a story that is being written as we speak. I mean, I do think um, people's pride for Tufts specifically in terms of the Tufts community. I mean, I think it's gone through the roof personally because Tufts has done such a commendable job at rolling out a testing structure that works and rolling out an excellent middle ground of restrictions while still maintaining aspects of the college experience that are really indispensable. Everyone I've talked to has been like, oh, thank God I'm at Tufts right now. Thank God we're being tested. Thank God they're taking this seriously because not everyone is taking it serious. In a time when real galleries were closed, the virtual world was more open and accessible than ever. In the era of the pandemic, we have seen hundreds of artists jump at the opportunity to share their visions with the world, either through Instagram or other online platforms. I'm Devki Kalra. And I'm Jamie Guerra. And today we will be speaking with Sarah Mukherjee about her work in the Box Art Gallery and what inspires her art. Sarah was a part of the SMFA Box Art Gallery last semester, an initiative started by Ned Carlson, a sophomore in the SMFA's combined degree program. The Box Art Gallery serves as an exhibition space for emerging young artists from Tufts University to share their work. Sylvia Wang, who wrote a piece about the Box Art Gallery for the print issue, describes it as a way to connect local artists across communities. Yeah, um, I'm Saira Mukherjee. I'm a sophomore and I'm in the like dual degree, like BA, BFA program at Tufts. And I'm studying clinical psych. 
SMFA doesn't have majors, but I'm like doing mostly painting, drawing, metalwork, um, just like exploring, I guess, because I'm still in my second year. Do you find that like clinical psych at all relates to your art in any way? I mean, I think like the reason I'm doing clinical psych is because like I'm hoping to be a therapist um, and I'm really interested in like more alternative forms of therapy. Um, so I feel like art therapy is like one way that I could take it, but there are other ways. Like I am practicing to be like a yoga teacher one day. I'm learning, I'm learning about like nutrition and, um, I'm hoping to do an anthropology minor because I like, I really want to integrate like the way that human history has influenced our brains and our mental health into therapy. So I think that's sort of where things like intersect for me. And then also just like generally like most of my art revolves around like very personal experiences for me or for others. So I think that's like very related to psychology. What are the like personal experiences that you would say characterize your art the most? I don't know. I think it's changing, changes a lot. Um, I feel like lately I'm taking a class. um, It's called image narrative psychoanalysis it's really cool it's like a studio class um and we've been talking a lot about dreams and we've been talking a lot about like something called a transitional object which is like after you're sort of like detaching from your mother you attach onto something else like sucking your thumb or like your teddy bear or something so I've been working with those two things a lot because of that class the last piece that I made was about sort of like the imagination as like a transitional object for me or like and making art in general and so I mean the piece was like pretty it was basically like a human face split open and like just me trying to like represent the imagination in like abstract ways it's hard to describe it like just through audio before this class I haven't really known how to like express emotions through artwork without explaining it but I think it's becoming more intuitive to me now when I was a kid like in sort of I remember my parents telling me like you're gonna have to learn how to spend time alone because I was very like play with me you know like kids are um and I think that's kind of when we like find something else so like one of my friends in class was talking about how video games were his transitional object and like books and stories and tv and artwork for a lot of us it was making art have you seen soul this is a very random question yeah i love soul kind of like what they have is it like the spark i could see that for sure yeah i think if you find that thing at a young age then it it's very possible that it would be your transitional object when did you start when did you you get involved with art i was a kid i was really young i think um for one of my birthdays i got like a set of oil paints i like asked for all these art supplies and I didn't get, like, anything that you would need to work with oil paints because, like, my parents didn't know. So I, like, really made a mess. And I had, like, oil paint all over me. And my dad has had to, like, use, like, extra strength, like, remover to get it off of me. <laughs> does your um, art, like, come from your imagination or does it come from real places or a mix of both? I think a mix of both, for sure. Something that I've really liked making like within the past like like in high school and stuff and now 
I like draw a lot of like pipe fixtures. I just really like like whenever I see them in real life, I just really like the like intricacy. I just think it's like I just think it's cool how like you could tear down walls and like that's what you'd see. Like they make up a lot of mm. our structures. It's just a cool idea to me. Yeah, one of your paintings was someone's face, right? In between pipes. Like stuck between a bunch of pipes. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so like what was like I guess the inspiration behind that one or the meaning? I mean, I made that I made that over quarantine. Um and I think like part of that for me had a lot to do with like sort of like the resurgence of like Black Lives Matter. Um it wasn't directly related at all to Black Lives Matter, but like I just was kind of going through a period where I was thinking a lot about like how systems influence us and how like we don't really realize like the impact of them um in our lives. I think um I think a lot of people like are blind to that. Um so I was yeah, just I thinking about that. Yeah. So that's why like the eyes were out of the head and stuff. Was like the pandemic an opportunity for you to get more invested in your art? Do you find yourself spending more time on it? I think so. I I tried to make a lot of art because like I didn't have as much to do, but at the same time like there's not a lot of inspiration that you can get from like pandemic life, I guess. Yeah. Um, so I was making stuff. I don't really like love the stuff that I was making, but I think like coming out of the pandemic and then making work about some of the things that like people were thinking about or like I was like thinking about during the pandemic has made me more inspired, I guess, than like work that I would make during. And the other two pieces, um, in the box art gallery, Kali and then the one of the face of Mandy patterns. When did you make those? Um, I made those in high school. They were two separate pieces, but I think like they're pretty related. I feel like a lot of my work in high school was like very much about like being South Asian. Um, and I think part of that is because like I didn't have many people around me that were South Asian or like I mm. like my high school was like pretty pretty white, like almost almost fully white so like I didn't have much of an outlet other than my artwork I mean I do Mandy and like that was a big way that I feel con- that I felt connected and still feel connected um, Are you Hindu? I think I'm more like spiritual with Hindu influences <laughs> like I don't know that I practice anything substantial but um like I'm really influenced by Hinduism mm-hmm. um yeah and yeah so I I do a lot of like pattern based work just because like I think I've like picked it up from from like looking at South Asian artists and stuff do you have a favorite South Asian artist I don't know I I have a lot of like favorite South Asian artists that like aren't visual artists but then I also I like have you heard of MF Hussein yeah I really like his work I know he's like controversial but I I think it's pretty cool. <laughs> He's like a like an abstract painter. I don't remember exactly from when. I want to say like the seventies or eighties. Um, but he he made a lot. He's Muslim and he made a lot of work with like Hindu iconography. Um, that people kind of like took badly. But um, the blending of of um, Muslim imagery and and Hindu imagery like made people uncomfortable so do you have an opinion on that 
see I don't really like know what is behind his work and I think like that's kind of intentional like I don't I've looked and I don't see much information about it um personally I don't really see anything wrong with it because I feel like Hindus are very like like we we take a lot of pride in our in our idols and like I think that if if Hindus don't have a problem with like Hindus depicting like deities mm. then I don't see a problem with other people depicting them as well I think they're really inspirational to a lot of people so you depicted one in your one of your Boxstar gallery paintings right? yeah that yeah yeah cool. thank you it was like made out of what was it like cardboard from fair, fair skin yeah. treatment companies yeah 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 it was um it was a piece of cardboard and i printed out like fair and lovely ads and um, painted it on top of it i did a summer program at um RISD, and i took a class called art and activism um which was like really cool and i don't remember there wasn't a prompt necessarily but like I guess I was just thinking about um, the story of Gali. Uh, she's like one of um There's like this mother goddess, Madurga, and Gali is kind of like her counterpart, I guess. And people think of it like every Hindu thinks of it differently. But like the way that I grew up hearing it um, is that she's like a cautionary tale, essentially. And like she um, she got super angry because of some something that happened in the story. And her anger, like, took over her, and she, like, stomped on her husband's face and killed him. And um, she, like, was blue instead of, like, her usual, like, fair skin, I guess. Um, And so my thought was sort of, like, the colorism and the sexism is very ingrained in that story. And it's it was something I was, like, grappling with was separating that out from, from, um, like, what I see Hinduism as, I guess. And so I guess I just thought that like layering the the fair and lovely ads with the depiction of Kali was like a good representation of how much you can dig into that story and like find things in it that are kind of unsavory. Thank you for joining us for that enlightening interview. And I highly recommend you check out more of Cyrus art on our Instagram page, Art Dumps by Cy. And don't forget to support all the other artists that took part in the Boxed Art Gallery at boxedartgallery.com. Thank you for listening to this episode. Our first segment on vaccine rollout was written and produced by Emma Downs and Reina Matsumoto. The segment on the Boxed Art Gallery was written and produced by Jamie Guerra and Deiki Kalra. Our final segment on Audrey Ledbetter's piece was written and produced by Suhasini Mehra and Alexis Ingerly. The Observer Podcast is executive produced by Florence Almeida and Sophia Bertel. <laughs>